probably did hate Mayo and we thought it was hate at the time because these guys are trying to take away our dreams The Football Pod live Thursday June 2nd in Castle Bar Check out otbsports.com forward slash events and get your tickets now Riding on the crest of a wave is 14-year-old Lester Pickett, son of trainer Keith Pickett. Famous jockey in his time, Keith knows Lester is really only just beginning. And pleased as he is, he's more concerned with his son's future. By getting out of the apprentice class so young, he's made no record. Frank Wooten did as well. But he's shown he's a born jockey. Besides riding and stable work, Lester has to get in his education too. Well, perhaps that is part of his education. There's a big future ahead of him. Though things will be a little harder now he's lost the allowance. Wise home guidance will see he goes the right way. Leicester will always remember where he won his 40th victory. It was at Leicester. A great day for father and son. Long may they enjoy success. Yeah, Pathé News there, uh, 1950 on uh, 14-year-old Lester Piggott and long he did enjoy success. So we are talking about an icon and quite possibly the greatest jockey of all time. Uh, Lester Piggott's passed away aged 86 in Switzerland on Sunday where he'd been living for much of the past decade. In so many ways his career won't be surpassed. His riding career lasted 47 years, 47 years he was uh, riding competitively. Over 5,000 winners around the world. Uh, his first race was in April 1948. And his first winner was that same year, 1948. He was 12 years old. He won the Derby aged 18 in 1954. And there was an early sign of his laconic ways. His response to winning the Derby aged 18 was, it's just another race. He would go on to win the Derby nine times and then after a year in prison for tax evasion and having retired from racing he made the most spectacular return to win the Breeders Cup mile at Belmont in 1990 aged 54 he wins his 30th English classic the 2000 guineas in 1992 11 times a champion jockey retired in 1995 so we are talking about the most extraordinary career the word legend overused and all that but not with Lester Piggott Sean McGee uh, collaborated with Lester Pickett on several books and projects and he joins us on the line. Sean, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for making time for us. Thank you for allowing me to be here. I'm very honoured. So when we assess Lester Pickett's career, what jumps out straight away is he's both something of a prodigy at 12 years of age, able to compete and win these races. And then at the other end of the spectrum, he has the most ridiculous longevity. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I can't think of any other major sportsman or indeed minor sportsman who's had anything comparable. And if you think he started, he got his first winner, as you said, when he was 12. And this really cut into his uh, childhood, really. Peter O'Sullivan, who was a great uh, racing commentator, of course, and a great friend of Leicester's, um, felt that Lester had sort of missed out on childhood, that he was uh, he was obsessed with horses from the very beginning, obsessed with speed, obsessed with winning, of course. And of, when he was a very young rider, Lester, the, uh, the presence of other participants, shall we say, didn't tend to stop him. He, he got, got into all sorts of scrapes with officialdom, but then uh, mellowed into the most sublime jockey. You, some, some of the time you could see a sort of masterclass. You could see him winning 
like he won the derby on Roberto, short head, he was giving the horse a real pummeling because he knew he wasn't doing much. And then the same way there's Shergar winning the um, Irish uh, derby with Leicester. And he didn't move a muscle. It, it, just, it, was, it was as if he was a kid uh, bouncing up and down and like a horse on the bed, you know, it's that sort of... He, it was like um, he had the whole range of skills. And he, as you again mentioned, of course, you had, he had this unbelievable longevity. It's just, as you said, 47. Uh, it still makes me just swoon in admiration. Yes. And there are so many aspects to maintaining a career of that length, not least his weight, because he was tall and tall by 1950s as standards as well when it came to jockeys. He was five foot seven, five foot eight territory. I was reading maybe his natural weight in the 1950s would have been 10 stone, seven pounds. And his riding weight was eight stone, seven pounds. And he maintained that riding weight from early 1950s all the way through to the 90s. How did he maintain the weight? Because that is a struggle. Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, he d- he had all sorts of schemes. I mean, he, he he didn't eat much for a start, which is fairly basic. He had this sort of strange um, sealed uh, onesie, if you a garment that he would put on and sweat like mad when driving to the races when he was living in. Newmarket, he needed to go to, I don't know, Carlisle, shall we say. He, he would deliberately make himself sweat off uh, plenty of weight. Interesting, when he um, retired the second, second time, and I spent quite a lot of time at various functions with him, um, promoting the book and so on, the, the Derby's book, Leicester's Derby's, um, it was, it, he still didn't eat much. He would still be very parsimonious and he he loved ice cream. Uh, and he he was mellowing and he, part of the mellowing in that period was, was cutting back on food, but he never uh, did anything worse than um, just sweat, 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 find different ways of sweating. Mm. From a racing family, which stretched back several generations, six, I think. So, you know, his grandfather, Ernie Piggott, won the Grand National three times. His father, Keith, apparently one of the best national hunt jockeys pre-Second World War. So he's, he's, he's born, not surprisingly, into racing stock, given his early start. And uh, clearly he, he just had a natural affinity for horses. I, I, I was reading an interview his daughter, uh, Tracy, gave where she would describe you could have the most cantankerous horse imaginable and in the arms of uh, her father was suddenly placid and calm. Yes, it's, it's interesting that, is that there was a, I think there was a special bond between Leicester and horses. I have a friend who was a vet in out in Singapore and uh, racing stables there and um, they had a, he told me they had a completely impossible filly uh, that wouldn't let anybody sit on her, and uh, they didn't know what to do. And Lester was passing through, and uh, he said, "Oh, you know, you know, he'd sit on her." And he, she was absolutely like putty in his hand. I think there was a res- respect between horse and jockey, which is very difficult to um, 
define. As for his career, he's a trendsetter in several ways. One thing I hadn't been aware of is the way maybe he shaped how jockeys do their business now. So he, early in his career, he has this great partnership with the trainer Noel Merlis. But he wanted to be also uh, paid a, re- a retainer and also allowed to ride other horses if he so choose. And that relationship came to an end in 1966. And so 60s, early 70s, it seems that Lester Pickett is freelance all over Europe and yeah, ultimately has a contract with a an owner then in Robert Sangster, which is quite unusual. Usually there's, there was a degree of jockeys being almost indentured to the trainers. And, and of course, Vincent O'Brien then comes on yeah. the scene and, and made things, well, I'm sure, uh, very worthwhile on the track, but also very lucrative as well. And I was reading about, you know, uh, stud fees, percentages and, and these kind of things. And, and so uh, Pickett... Probably by example and, and setting that new trend, brought a lot more money into the pockets of jockeys. Yes, he was. He was. Um, he started becoming involved in the breeding side of things by uh, having a. If he, if he won a classic, he'd get a part of that horse when he came when the horse came to uh, to uh, the stud. Um, he, I think he, the, the other way, of course, in which he really changed things was the diet riding style. And he had his bottom up in the air, famously, and he, somebody said to him, uh, why do you stick your bottom up in the air? And he said, well, I've got to put it somewhere. Hmm. And uh, he, he, it was impossible for an aspiring apprentice jockey to really copy Piggott because he was... He had a unique style and gosh, didn't it work? Wasn't it efficacious? So, Sean, he was the first to have his backside in the air, was he? Yes, he was pretty well because uh, the other great hero of the, of the, uh, whose career was ending at the time the Leicester's was beginning was, of course, Gordon Richards. And if you see film or even stills of uh, Gordon Richards, he is much, much, much more up, uh, upright. Mm. And... Uh, Pickett was just unusual um, in that he, if you look at these um, photographs of him, of Leicester, they're just, you don't, you don't know, you, you wouldn't want to imitate them, put it like that. There's a quote from Hugh McIlvanny about Lester Pickett, and he says, when he walked into Paddock before the Derby, it was like seeing Brando on the screen. You couldn't look at anybody else. There was a kind of aloofness, almost an aura of superiority, certainly of a man apart. You might speak to Sean about his uh, presence on the racing scene and his personality. He had a speech impediment. He certainly didn't like doing interviews and, and uh, didn't say uh, two words when one would do and, and was aloof, a man apart. You describe him in your piece in The Guardian this week as an enigmatic personality. It's always, uh, sometimes that's a euphemism, I'm not sure. So uh, give us a sense of the man that you knew and and the man, I suppose, that that racing people knew over the decades. Well, I knew him for the last perhaps 15 years of his life when we were doing things, um, books, etc., he he was what was a sort of magnetically interesting about him was that he was a, a a a cocktail of all sorts of different states and so he could be he could be absolutely charming and he could be 
horrible <laughs> in the same, almost in the same sentence. And I think people found this intriguing. He did not go, um, he did not go for, for flying dismounts and so on. You can't, just can't imagine figure doing a flying dismount. Um, there are all sorts of other ways, but th because he was so internal, really. I mean, he, he, as you said, he didn't use two words when one would do, or, or it, indeed, even better would be zero will do. Um, and I think because he appeared aloof, he appeared unusual, shall we say. Interestingly, um, a couple of people in the last couple of days since his death have said to me that, that he, he was um, the oddest person they'd, they'd ever met. And you can slightly see why. He was he was completely sort of internalised. And um, the, 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 the key to sort of find the key to Piggott, which very few people did. Mm. So explain to us maybe what, what people would have meant or how they would have drawn the conclusion that he was odd or when you say he could be horrible and charming, what might that look like? Yes, horrible was was an exaggeration. I I wouldn't want to use that really. Um, he he well he was famously supposedly mean to uh, as a sort of obsession. He was never mean with me. He was always perfectly straightforward arrangement. Um, I think he, he as you said he had a speech impediment. He was partially deaf. And it made him seem much more remote than other people. You know, he wouldn't, nowadays, Frankie Dittori would go around hugging everybody in the paddock. Lester would never have done that. And he, you, you sense there was something internal going on. But uh, win or lose, of course, and you mentioned about him winning the derby. And then the, the first um, derby, 1954, Everybody wanted, when he was 18, everybody wanted a quote from Leicester. And he, he said he was going to go home and mow the lawn. And he uh, supposedly did just that. And uh, when he won again the second time, he said he'd, he'd mowed the lawn again. So I think he quite enjoyed playing up with the press, especially as he got more, mm. uh, more and more... Um, famous, then he gets more and more attention from the press. And he was always a bit uncomfortable with that. I mentioned a, a strange business when he was driving up the Finchley Road in uh, London and uh, on a very hot day and he loved ice cream and he stopped uh, at a, an ice cream vendor on the road, Finchley Road, and um, the chap serving serving Lester his ice cream, said, hey, mister, aren't you that Wilson Pickett? And he, he said, yes, he probably was, because it was simpler to sort of just say yes and move on and get engaged. He was explaining who Wilson Pickett was and so on. So, But and again, in later years, he, he definitely mellowed a lot. I was with him at the Curra uh, some few years ago when we were, the, the focal point was a, an exhibition of Lester's uh, career put together by my friend Nico Tool. And he wanted, he it was very busy on the first two days. And then before we took it, he took it down. 
Lester wanted to come and have a look by himself on the following morning. And he it was fascinating watching Lester being enthralled by aspects of his own career, some of them many a long, long time ago. But he he was I think he was more uh proud of his achievements than he would let on. Mm. And that was quite interesting. And another occasion, I was with him at a variety club um, lunch at Sandown Park. And they went round, whoever the MC was, I can't remember the master of ceremonies. Anyway, he went round getting the celebrities there to take a, take a bow. And they, he, the MC forgot about Leicester. And he was very hurt. And he said, he said, I don't know who they are and they don't know who I am. <laughs> and then Jimmy Tarbuck, God bless him, uh, realised what the gaff that you, you have a racing lunch and there's Lester, Lester Piggott and you don't acknowledge this, bounced up on the stage and um, said, and here we have the finest, greatest racing man of all time, Lester Piggott. And Lester was very chuffed that they... You know, they'd taken the trouble to correct this gaffe. Mm. Uh, Tracy Pickett, his daughter, gave an interview with Paul Kimmage in the Sunday Independent a few years ago. And uh, she was saying of her father, sometimes he's not very chatty. We talk about different things, really. My daughter, what I'm doing, how Jessica Harrington's horses are going. That's always a big subject. And we'll talk about my mother. They're not long conversations, but he's better than he used to be. It used to be a few grunts. But a lot of that was a problem with his hearing. But he's got these things he puts in his ears that connect wirelessly to his mobile phone, and it's amazing. Although I still think he pretends he can't hear sometimes. He was always good yeah. at that. Um, when you describe this uh, man who's very internal and, 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 and self-possessed and uh, certainly not in need of small talk or chit-chat or, or hugs, uh, did you sense that he was somebody who was um, contented in himself and quite happy, or... Was there, um, I don't want to use too strong a word, but, you know, somebody uh, slightly ill at ease in himself? I think he got more relaxed as he got older. And uh, having had the, 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 a career that lasted so long, spanned so many years, to, to, he, to relax this sort of regime a bit, and obviously he was getting older, um, was important and I think in the last few years he he really relaxed is his best word mm. and um, and became somewhat more chatty um, he was he was easier with Lester talking about horses than anything else of course because he was he wasn't that interested in things apart from the racing but he was a terrific judge if you sat and watched a race with Lester, he would point out a horse right back in the ruck and said, "and say that one's going to win," mm. and they usually do when uh, when he's when he's, he's in form. What do you think his attitude to horses was? Do he love them and value them and see them as as individuals to be cherished, or were they very much uh, his to his think, tools almost? Yeah, I think um, he did. He he, he did get close to some horses and but not routinely. I mean, um, horses were the sort of tools of the trade in some way. What he loved is speed, I think. 
uh, just the sheer sensation of speed. But I remember him telling me he went to um, uh, an American stud where Sir Ivor, who won the Derby, Leicester, Sir Ivor was among the stallions there. And um, he just, he Leicester was convinced that he, he Sir Ivor, had remembered him. And, and he had a real affection for that horse, and you could tell. And then some other horses you would say in his career, a horse like Ardross, he said, who won the Ascot Gold Cup, who um, Ardross could really, he, he would sense the way this horse was putting in his maximum effort and he would lower himself towards the ground and then mm. take off. And it's that sort of detail which is fascinating. I mean, as I mentioned Church, uh, sorry, Shergar earlier, and uh, he was... He's won so easily, but you could tell that Lester was enjoying it, the, the, enjoying the ride, as it were. Uh, and I think, by the same token, they're probably horses he didn't much like. But then he rode so many in his time. Mm. Forgive him that. It's hard to overstate his fame, uh, reading about him over the last day or two. And from the 1960s, it seems he was the highest earning sportsman in the UK. He was doing incredibly well for himself. And along with, say, Bobby Charlton, it seems it was, you know, Lester Piggott, Bobby Charlton. He was in that upper echelon of just a handful of sports stars who was ubiquitous and known by everyone. Um, and you mentioned the the meanness, which is mentioned by various people, both in jest and also very seriously. And I, I suppose it, it brings us to this this point in his career where 1975 OBE he is you know entering legendary status into the 1980s and then the the fall from grace I suppose a five month investigation 1987 and uh, millions in in tax uh, over over the previous 10 years it seems there were fake names and different bank accounts Switzerland Bahamas Cayman Islands it was a, a big operation but I was reading at the time of, of this happening to him in the late 1980s having been the highest earning sportsman for quite some time. His fortune in 1987 is 20 million sterling, estimated, um, is what I read. And so that's probably closer to 40, 50 million in today's terms. That suggests like a, a neurotic sense of wanting to, to keep every penny I can. Uh, what can you tell us, Sean, about that whole fall from grace? I, I, I suspect it wasn't something he loved talking about. No, he didn't, and nor did he like talking about being in prison, of course, uh, where he was. He was actually locked up for an, a, a year and a day. Um, I don't know the details of the way that you do about the um, about the figures, but there was a certain, um, possibly a certain innocence to him, as long as, you know, with, the, with what he did with his money. I think he was, he... He, I'm trying to think of the, the right word, way of putting it. Uh, he would hoard in other things. If, if you'd said, I want to hire Lester Bigot to do an after-dinner speech or whatever, and you paid him or the, whoever it was, they would, he, they would always see him counting the money as soon as he'd, as soon as he'd got it and this sort of thing. He, 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 he is a certain sort of possessiveness. Um, the thing about the, the, the tax 
evasion which finally got him in prison. Because as you say, in um, uh, examined before, uh, but um, the thing, sorry, I've lost my drift. No, you're okay. Okay. Um, it, it was, it, oh yeah, sorry, right. When he finally dis, uh, came to an agreement with the Indian Revenue, then what? And uh, agreed that some he would pay them to, to clear this um, amount owing. There, he signed them a check on an account that he had failed to reveal to them. <laughs> and even I, <laughs> no, that wouldn't be terrible. Ever. And apparently, and I checked this out with sources, we'd say in the um, revenue world, um, that they just got fed up with him. They thought, you know, he's, he's, he's having a laugh. And uh, so, so they, he ended up in jail. He found the, the whole experience of jail, I think he found it a, a, a great waste of time. That's what the phrase he always used. If I was writing something which I had to write, you know, sort of bet with him, uh, we, we would put that it, it, was, it was just a waste of time. Um, Even that gives a sense of the personality, doesn't it? Like yeah. other, others would describe it in far more emotional terms. Yes, yeah, and I think it, it's just a, it was just a, a, a year of his life which was just wasted. And then, of course, when he when he came out, he, he Susan, his wife, had been carrying on with the training license because he was training by then. Um, and then he just he just sort of disappeared for um, quite a while. And then Vincent O'Brien uh, had the brilliant idea of. Uh, pressing Leicester to go to, to make a comeback. And he ended up winning the Breeders' Cup mile, as you mentioned. Uh, just a staggering, staggering. But 12 days after his return to the saddle, oh, was he it? was winning the Breeders' Cup mile. Was it so, only 12? And it had to be yeah. close. It was a neck, wasn't it? I didn't, I didn't realise it was so soon after returning. So he... Uh, it, it was, he came back. He actually came back on a... Monday, I think, and Le Leicester, and then he he was in the um, Breeders' Cup mile in on the Saturday the following week. So it was twelve days. Wow. And 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 the, the, he was interviewed by by Bruff Scott for the telly. And Bruff said to him, uh, "Can you, you know?" He, uh, sorry, Lester said to Ruff, you, uh, "You just never forget," and that was the that was the he was acknowledging the deep in in his psyche, really, I guess, as well as his physical side of things. Um, that uh, you never forget. It's a good, good little phrase that I've always liked. That. Mm. So I have a, a audio of that famous win because we are we are talking here about going to jail for a year and a day two years of keeping an incredibly low profile and then he's, he's tempted back after having retired in 1985 jail 87 into 88 and, and two years of nothing and then as you said 12 days after his return to the saddle he wins this big race the Breeders' Cup mile at Belmont in 1990 mm -hmm. aged 54 Vincent O'Brien you know is, is 
supporter for so long, giving him the right again. So we're going to play the audio here. You'll hear the American television commentator introducing it and then the commentary of the race. And then we'll hear Lester Pickett being interviewed because I, I hadn't heard him being interviewed very uh, much before this week when I, I cared to go and check. And you can, you, the, certainly the speech impediment is, is very evident. So this is the Breeders' Cup mile coverage, Belmont, 1990, 12 days after Lester Pickett has come back from retirement and, and two years on from being in prison. It's been a terrific year for the Gray Hairs. Uh, Nolan Ryan at 43 continues to overpower with his strikeout speed, and George Foreman continues to box after 40 and box pretty well. Hale Irwin, how about him in the U.S. Open? And comebacks, too, by Joe Ferguson in the NFL and Guy Lafleur in hockey. And in racing, 54-year-old Lester Piggott, England's all-time rider. He's the British Bill Shoemaker. He's taken a circuitous path to today's Breeders' Cup. On the outside, Mark of Distinction has clear running now, and here comes Mark of Distinction with his run for the lead. Lady Winner is in behind a phalanx of horses with nowhere to go. Royal Academy and Lester Pickett are six lengths off the lead, but they're launching their rally now as they come down to the final furlong. It's all great to me as a short lead, expensive decision, battling back. Mark of Distinction, Royal Academy is thundering down the center of the turf course, and Steinlin is fifth. They're coming down to the finish. Lester Pickett back here for Lester Pickett today. We expected you to go to the lead early on, but you sat back. Can you tell us what happened out there in the race? Well, I had a good race, really, you know. Uh, I, was, I was a little slow away. Uh, you know, just a bit... It was a bit scared of the gates, you know, doing on the inside there. It was just a bit slow. But after that, you know, I had a nice one all the way through, you know, and uh, he, just, he just looked at something when he straightened out, you know. I'm too young to remember it, but like, what a sensation! It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was absolutely verbose by his usual standards. <laughs> I think there are two, two at least two uh, sentences in there. No, I mean, funnily enough, I I went to that race, uh, Breeders' Cup, and um, it was everything was amazing in it. And but this, so so. 12, 12 days, and then he's back. is quite staggering and um, wonderful of um, Vincent O'Brien to spend such time twisting uh, Lester's arms in the lead, in the lead up to the to resuming his, his racing career. An amazing period of time. Their relationship was obviously mutually beneficial from a professional standpoint. Presumably, it went deeper than that over the years. Yes, I think he did, and I think I mean it was it's a sort of open secret that he he was exasper he was let uh, Vincent found Lester exasperating because Lester would um, get quite uh, down to business with horses on the gallops and sometimes too much for Vincent's liking. But uh, a few years ago, when not long before Vincent died, I was at the Coro with Lester, and um, Vincent had his had his box and his family with him up there. And on the way out, we Lester said he wanted to go up and see 
um, Vincent, and, and we went in the room, and Vincent says, oh, hello, Lester, hello, Lester. Lester says, right, you know, that sort of strange intonation, and, and just stood by um, Vincent, just stood, so there was a sort of spi uh, sp a spiritual um, link between them, which I found really, again, difficult to describe, but really special and in their two ways. Really, each of them was a genius, those two. Mm. Amazing. Vincent O'Brien, not a big talker either, I understand. That's right, yes. I mean, he would, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't have um, Frankie Dottori's uh, approach to publicity and so on, no. But uh, but he, he he Vincent of course was famously uh, um, famously obsessed with details. Well, had a regard for detail, and that's what. And he interestingly nowadays, a lot of trainers have 150, 200, sometimes. Vincent never had more than about 50 horses in his yard. Because he liked to have have a, have a close um, feeling about each and every horse in the yard. Well, Sean, it's been great to talk to you. What, what an extraordinary career Lester Piggott had. How will you remember him finally? Um, I think I will remember him as the this cocktail of different personality traits and so on. I mean, as I said in that Guardian piece, uh, he, he would drive me up the pole, up the wall, but I still loved him. And and if you know, he's sort of. When I say uh, drive me up the wall, it was something. It was it was usually something fairly trivial. And he was. In, people always said was wasn't Lester. Um, a very difficult person to ghost write. And in fact, he wasn't at all, but he was very easy because all he cared about was that the the text should be right. He doesn't, he doesn't mind to do the florid bits. I can do that. Um, and uh, he he was interested, but he was he wasn't he wasn't deeply involved in some of these he, because he knew he could be um, making much more money on the uh, publicity circuit. Well, listen, Sean, thanks so much for coming on. We do appreciate it. Sean McGee, uh, pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.